Every church has a story. Our story here at Redeemer began in the mid-1800s, actually as two churches in the DeWitt community. There wasn't much to the town of DeWitt in those days, but the circuit-riding preachers made their way here, and groups of faithful followers established a church near the Four Corners in downtown DeWitt and another out on this property where we worship today. I'm guessing that someone must have thought, what could a church possibly offer this mostly rural community? In marketing parlance, what niche would we fill? Methodism began with the vision of John Wesley back in the mid-1700s. Wesley was an Anglican priest in the Church of England, a man who who was dedicated to the Bible, to having faith make a difference in society. He was often referred to as a man of one book, given the fact that the Bible was his final authority and contained all the things necessary to salvation. The foundation for all that he did was rooted in Scripture and the life-transforming gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Wesley also believed that faith without action was useless, and so he went about making the society around him a better place through education, through care for the sick, by reforming the institutions of the culture. But one burning conviction stood out above everything else. John Wesley wanted a church that would believe in the Bible, all of it, from first to the last and everything in between. But through the years, controversy over the Bible began to tear the church in this country apart. It was a struggle between the fundamentalists on one side and the modernists on the other and it affected almost every major denomination. In fact, the church in America was torn apart by this struggle between liberals and conservatives. So if you read the history books, you will discover that the liberals seemed to win every battle. They won in the Methodist church, in the Presbyterian church, in the Episcopal church, the Congregational church, and slowly but surely, the liberals, aided by compromising moderates, drove many of the conservatives out of power and ultimately out of many of the mainline denominations. Now looking back on those days, we can see clearly that there was really one big issue at stake. Is the Bible the word of God? And will we insist that our pastors preach the God-inspired truth of the Bible? Everything else was secondary. Even the great creation evolution debate ultimately came down to the question of whether or not Christians would believe that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are literally true. The modernists answered no, the fundamentalists said yes. The founders of the Methodist church were decidedly Bible-centered in their theology, simply meaning that they believed the Bible was the word of God. I'm telling you all of this Uh, simply trying to point out that our heritage lies with those who believe the Bible. Much has changed over the years. I'm sure the pioneers who were part of this congregation some 150 years ago would hardly recognize our church today. They would be amazed to know that over 500 people, not counting the children and youth, worship here on this campus every weekend. And they might even be more surprised to know that we now have a second campus in St. John's. Our founders knew nothing about video projection systems. 
uh, jet airplanes, um, even air conditioning, which we enjoy in the summer months. Television had not been invented. No one had ever thought of something like smartphones or music on the internet. Things we take for granted today weren't even on the drawing board back then. And I'm sure many of our ancestors would be scandalized as well by our clothing, by our cars, by our contemporary worship. But one thing I think would cheer them up, and that is that we still believe the Bible just like they did in the beginning. Through all the incredible changes of the 20th century and now 19 years into the 21st century, this congregation has not wavered from the important truth that brought us into existence. Whatever else you can say about us, we are a church today where one of our core values is the primacy of Scripture. So with that as a background this morning and using the words of the Apostle Paul as our guide, I want to answer one very important question as we move into the study that we've been doing from 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament. Today we are in chapter 2. And the question that I want us to wrestle with uh, today is what does it mean for us to believe the Bible? Our text today would suggest three answers to that question, and the first one is this. Believing the Bible means accepting its authority in every area of our life. I want you to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning with verse 13. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Therefore, we never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. Now, Paul uses two words here in verse 13 to explain what he means. First, he says, you received the word of God. That's the hearing of the ear. It's objective. It's like signing a receipt at the post office so you can pick up a package. Paul means that the Thessalonians listened intently to the message that he preached because they knew that it came from God. And secondly, he says, you accepted it as the word of God. This word accepted means to welcome a visitor into your home. This is the hearing of the heart. We have the hearing through the ears and a hearing through the heart. It's subjective. There is a difference between the two words because it's very possible for us to listen to the preaching of God's word and not be changed by it. It's something else entirely to welcome God's message into our heart and let it transform our life. Now the focus of this verse is crucial. Paul is saying you heard the message from a person but you recognize that it came from God. You heard from us, the human side, God's message, the divine side, and you responded not as if it were our opinion, but as if it were God's word. And that's why the debate over the nature of the Bible is so crucial. If it is only the word of humans, then it's changeable, it's fickle, it's unreliable. But if the Bible is the word of God, then it is totally and completely authoritative. If God has spoken in the Bible, then what he says has final claim on our life. So let me summarize this point with two simple statements. If the Bible comes from human sources, we are entitled to sit in judgment on it. But if the Bible comes from God, 
we are to bow in submission to it. Here's the critical question that each of us must answer. What do we believe about the Bible? Does it come from human sources or from God? Is it on the level with the daily newspaper or does it speak with divine authority? If we say that it's the word of God, then we must also say that it's not simply one message among many. It's not like the Republican or the Democratic platforms that come through debate and consensus. If the Bible is the word of God, it is totally exclusive in its claims. It doesn't beg for our approval. The word of God is not like the first draft of a thesis where the writer submits it and then says, what do you think? I remember a number of years ago when I wrote the first draft of my doctoral thesis, it came back to me with pages covered in red ink. Okay, change this, delete that, follow a different form in your footnotes, indent this many spaces, on and on. And I discovered that I needed to do what they said if I wanted to get my degree. After all, I was not writing a new book of the Bible. It was just a dissertation. Therefore, it could be corrected, could be revised. But not so with the Bible. God never asks us to correct the New Testament, does he? He never asks us to go back and review Isaiah and make a few changes. And he won't be too thrilled by those who would like to add or take from the book of Revelation. Reminds me of a, an old story about a church that was going through a particular difficult time and no one could simply uh, seem to agree on anything. So they were at a business meeting one night at the church and various factions were arguing of all things about the minutes of the last meeting. And when the pastor decided to take a break and he read a passage of scripture and just as he finished, an older gentleman stood up to his feet and said, Mr. Chairman, I move that we approve the Bible as read. You know, it's kind of like that for you and me. The Bible stands approved as read. This much we already know, but consider the last phrase of verse 13. This is really, I've read this uh, chapter in Thessalonians probably numerous times over the years. I've never really caught this until going through it again this time. And, and here's what Paul says. And this word continues to work in you who believe. This word continues to work in you who believe. Here Paul ties the power of the word of God to the response of a believing heart. And the five key words he uses there continues to work in you. The word works. There is power in the word of God when its divine authority is accepted into a believing heart. Now the word works uh, is like our English word energy. The word is energized within us when we believe it. It's like farmland that bears a rich harvest. It's like an investment that pays a huge dividend. And that is good news for us when we hear the message outwardly and we welcome it inwardly when we allow God's word to rule over every area of our lives, it energizes us and it produces a wonderful harvest. My first full year on the job as a young pastor, I was introduced to Christian athletic camp. It's a non-traditional week of camping for middle school and high school students that our conference then was sponsoring for kids who enjoyed sports. Christian Athletic Camp is still going. I've been with it now 40 years. 
and still loving every day of it. But when I was there in the early days as a coach, I was exposed for the first time to something called quiet time. It was then a state-mandated one-hour rest period after lunch. And originally that quiet time meant that all of our students had to be on their cots, lights out in the room, given the opportunity to rest from a very busy and strenuous schedule. We still do the quiet time today. And our kids, they can sleep, they can talk quietly with their friends, they can play cards, they can listen to music or relax a bit. But originally, it was a time set aside every day for our students and staff alike to read their Bibles and pray. For one hour every day, the whole camp stopped and we had a quiet time. And I know some of our students and staff worked on their Bible study lessons, they journaled, they uh, used it for prayer time. Uh, some of you may still set a time aside in your day for a quiet time. Today we call it devotional time. It's a time when we work on our spiritual life. Because when all is said and done, we know of nothing more important for maintaining a warm relationship with Jesus Christ than a consistent, regular, quiet time with God. I also know that it doesn't get easier over the years. In many ways, it gets harder because as we get older, we get busy with jobs, with family, with daily activities. And the sad part is that we tend to substitute Christian activity for a simple discipline of time with God and time in his word. But my question is this, how can we say we believe the Bible? How can we accept its authority if we're not reading it, if we're not spending time with God each day? Maybe you've been a Christian for many years. Maybe you've taught Sunday school. Maybe you've served in lots of other ways in the life of the church and you rationalize that you have some knowledge of the Bible. You know, new Christians don't have to be convinced that reading and studying the Bible is necessary. Um, but experienced Christians are the ones who tend to drift away first. So what does it mean to believe the Bible? Our first answer is very clear. Bible, believing the Bible means accepting its authority in every area of our life. But then verse 14 offers us a second answer. Believing the Bible means accepting the opposition that it brings. Look at verse 14. Then, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. In this way, you imitated the believers in God's churches in Judea who, because of their belief in Christ Jesus, suffered from their own people, the Jews. Now here we have a piece of bad news. If you believe the Bible, you're going to have some strong enemies in this world. But here's the really bad news. When Paul uses the word countrymen, he uses a word that is absolutely unique. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. And it means the people closest to you. If we decide to believe that the Bible is the word of God, just know that there are some people who are close to us who will not share our faith. There are well-meaning members of many local congregations that do not want their pastor or their church to speak out boldly against sin because in their mind we run the risk of turning away people that we're trying to reach. And in my heart, I understand their concern. No one likes to be unpopular. I know full well that there are people in every community who don't care for the church, who don't like what it stands for. But the truth of the matter is different, is much different. The church is filled with people who love God, 
and love other people. So let's say it and say it clearly. We don't hate people here. We welcome everyone into this community of worship, regardless of who they are. Our doors are always open to people without exception. You don't have to pass a background check to attend our services. We welcome all people. But our deepest commitment is to the Word of God. We will preach it, and we will teach it, and we will proclaim it because we believe it is the only hope for a dying world. Here then is the sober truth. Believing the Bible means accepting the opposition that it sometimes brings. And yet, there is a third answer to our question as well. What does it mean to believe the Bible? And here's the third one. Believing the Bible means accepting its judgment on society. Look at verses 15 and 16. For some of the Jews killed the prophets, and some even killed the Lord Jesus. Now they have persecuted us too. They fail to please God and work against all humanity as they try to keep us from preaching the good news of salvation to the Gentiles. And by doing this, they continue to pile up their sins. But the anger of God has caught up with them at last. These are some pretty serious words. In these verses, Paul mentions four ways that the Jews opposed the early Christians. They killed Jesus and the prophets. They drove the apostles out of Jerusalem. They were hostile to all people, and they hindered the preaching of the gospel. And the last point is that one, the one that grips Paul's heart and mind. You see, it's one thing to say, not for, you know, this, this faith thing is not for me, but it's okay for you. But it's something else to say, hey, it's not for me, and I'm going to make sure it's not good for you either. If you prefer to stay in darkness, that's your privilege, but it's a terrible sin to put out the light so that others, including your children and your family, others can't see the light. There is something fundamentally wrong with a faith that cuts off a person from their fellow human beings. This is not of God. The greater sin is not refusing salvation, but trying to keep others from believing. And if you prefer to spend your eternity and your future away from the presence of your creator, that's your business, but please don't try to take others with you. There are those who will never attend a church, and they will do anything to stop other people from attending. There are some who will never pray in a public school, and they'll threaten a lawsuit against anybody who does. They, they won't go to church and they will use the zoning laws to keep churches out of their neighborhood. They'll never attend a home Bible study, and they'll get ticked off at a neighbor who hosts a small group, and there's cars on the street in front of his house. They'll not accept Christ themselves, but they'll, and they'll mock those who come to faith. They create an ungodly atmosphere at work, and they attempt to imitate, intimidate Christians into compromise and silence. These are real people who are all around us. Not all unbelievers fit this pattern, but some do. They do all they can to actively oppose Christ followers who are trying to share Christ with others. Look at verse 16. It tells us two things about God's judgment on these people. One, they continue to pile up their sins. As another translation puts it, they heap up on their sins to the limit. The word means to fill something to the brim. There's a limit. There's a line. There's a point of no return for each of us. No one knows when and where that point is, but the point of no return comes for nations, 
for families, for individuals. And secondly, the anger of God has caught up with them at last. The word is both present and future. Although God is patient, his patience has limits. Eventually, the storm clouds roll in and break over the heads of unbelievers. Though they may be delayed, eternal judgment will come ultimately to those who reject our Lord. Now, please understand, this is God's judgment on any society that rejects his revelation. No nation, no individual can reject God with impunity. No nation can sin forever without reaping a divine punishment. This is the final answer to the question, what does it mean for us to believe the Bible? If we believe the Bible, we must accept that there will be judgment on society. Paul makes that very clear. Let me wrap up this message with two concluding thoughts. There are certain unchangeable facts which I believe are true and must be believed if we're to be truly a Christ follower. These truths are not like the shifting tides of human opinion. They don't change with the latest Gallup poll. These truths make Christianity what it is, and if they're neglected or denied, our faith loses its foundation. Our only basis for authority is the Bible. Like the great reformer Martin Luther said at the Diet of Arms, We say, our conscience is bound by the word of God. Here we stand. We can do no other. That kind of stand will not win us brownie points with the world or with the local newspapers, but be that as it may, we have been standing on the word of God for a lot of years. Let me sharpen the point just a bit. Suppose someone were to ask why you are a Christian. It's not enough to say, hey, I believe in Jesus because he solves all my problems. I come to this church because I meet a lot of great people here. That's all beside the point. We must not claim to be Christ followers simply because of some advantage we receive. We must believe because the message is from God and it's truth. And no other answer will suffice. God's wrath is a terrible reality that is promised to every individual or institution or nation that turns away from him. There's such a thing as true moral guilt. We are a sinner by nature, by birth, by choice. If we deny that or soften it or shy away from it, then we will not believe the Bible no matter what anyone says. This truth is badly needed today and we do not help people by hiding it from them. Only when people see that they're under God's judgment are they ready to hear about a love that God has for them. Once a person acknowledges their personal need, then we can tell them about Jesus and his death and his resurrection and how that pro- he provided full payment for our sins. And once they know that, they're ready to enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that means that every one of us has a choice. A choice to go their, our own way and face God's judgment ultimately or to turn to God in Christ and receive from him salvation and forgiveness and a brand new life. When a person says in their heart, I've decided to follow Jesus, they've made a choice to step off the path that leads to death and onto the path that leads to life. They turn off the steep road that leads down to a future away from the presence of God and set their feet on a path that leads to heaven. I suppose you might sum up my message today by saying that there's good news, there's sad news, and there's bad news. The good news is that the Bible is true, and when we believe it, God's power is released in our life. 
The sad news is that sometimes people closest to us will oppose our faith. And the bad news is that God's judgment comes on those who reject his word. The United Methodist Church was founded on a bedrock belief in the Bible, and although much has changed over the years, our founding documents haven't changed. And by God's grace, will never change. Believing the Bible is serious business. There's no substitute for the word of God. It's not a very catchy, it's not uh, very catchy sometimes, um, but it's true. There is no substitute for the word of God. Our founders believed it, and that's why they started this church some 150 years ago. And we still believe it. And with God's help, we will continue to believe it until Jesus comes again. Pray with me. God, thank you that you indeed are powerful and loving and that out of your glorious riches, you strengthen us through your spirit in our inner being. So we ask you for today for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. We ask for your power and your love to fill us. We thank you that as believers, we know that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And we pray that you would strengthen our roots and establish our lives firmly in your love and in your grace and your word. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.